Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. In this bonus episode, I got to speak to the incredible Cal Major. Cal's got some stellar SUP achievements under her belt to talk about, including being the first person to paddleboard from Land's End to John O'Groats. But her most recent achievement is her epic new series, Scotland Ocean Nation, showing the beauty of the wildlife, the ocean and the people she encountered on an 800-mile paddle around the coast of Scotland and this new series and her other stunning films about her adventures are free to watch online and the links to watch them are in the show notes. The biggest compliment you can give us here at the Sup FM podcast is to share this episode with any of your paddle buddies who haven't yet discovered the show. And if you wanted to catch new episodes as they come out, you can subscribe on your podcast provider of choice on our new YouTube channel or by signing up to our newsletter, which you can do by going to supfmpodcast.com forward slash list. So whether you're a paddleboarder or if you just love the ocean, I hope you'll enjoy this episode where it was a great honour to chat with adventurer and TV personality, Cal Major. So I'm delighted to welcome uh, back to the show a previous guest who's done a huge amount over many years to connect people with and spread love of the water and also to raise the profile of SUP as a means to explore and appreciate the marine environment. Hi, Cal. Welcome back to SUP FM. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, I know that even by your own extreme standards, you've had a really busy couple of years recently, and I'm imagining that that hasn't really let up in 2023. So really appreciate you coming back on for a chat. And you've recently released a a truly spectacular three-episode series on STV, uh, which is available to stream for free, and it's called Scotland Ocean Nation. And I think it's available to stream until the end of March 2024. And it is the most fantastic watch. I mean, you you must be very delighted with with how it's turned out. Oh, thank you. Um, To be honest, until the last few weeks, I felt quite... um, uh, It's been really hard to watch because we've spent two years editing these films. James, my partner and I, we spent two years editing them and we know them like the back of our hand. And it's really hard when you've been so involved in a project to be able to step back and look at it um, with any kind of objectivity. But the response is brilliant and I'm really grateful to everybody who's um who's watched it and commented and sent messages and and what have you and people seem to be really really connecting with the messages and that's the main thing you know yes it's a beautiful series and there's some amazing shots and James has done the most incredible job of capturing all the wildlife and 
the Scottish coastline, but it's the the interviews and the chats and the messages and the um, the kind of events that happen along the way that bring those messages to life that we really wanted to get across to people. And that seems to be getting through. So I am absolutely delighted with that. Honestly, it's been such a long journey getting to this point and to be able to finally share them with people is a real joy. So it's, yeah, a relief. It's phenomenal. And I contacted you rather poorly timed, actually. I think it was a couple of days before you were due to actually set out on there. So you politely declined the opportunity to speak. And I can't say I really blame you, bearing in mind what was um, ahead of you. But you can certainly see that the care and the time that's been put in, particularly in the edit, because there isn't a, a sort of air second in it, really. But, it, it you know, it, it's perfectly timed. But um, so at a, at a surface level, it gives views the experience of paddling with you around the coast of Scotland. So that's 800 miles, which is every bit as beautiful and spectacular and, and also as challenging as you would expect. But it's, mm. as you say, also about you connecting with the ocean, the wildlife and the water community. And yeah. it records your interactions during the, the entire journey. And I don't know how you've done it, but you you deal with the issues and some fairly gritty issues that, that face the marine environment. But what comes across is an overwhelming optimism about what anyone can do in order to make a contribution and a positive difference. And I came out of watching the series feeling personally very uplifted um, and if anything, even more connected to the water, which I guess that's mission accomplished as far as you're concerned. Um, but, you know, I, I also learned a, a huge amount um, during the course of the, the series. Oh, brilliant. I'm honestly so glad to hear that because that's basically ticked all of the boxes of what we wanted to achieve, to take people on a journey. It's the whole reason for doing this expedition was to be able to take people on a journey, to engage them in the ocean in a way that isn't just standing on the shore and speaking to camera, like actually take them with us, show people what's outside and out of mind, go diving, get underwater, see what's there, um, inspire them to maybe understand their own connection to the sea, even if they don't spend much time there. And then, yeah, teach people about what's there, what's out of sight, out of mind, because that's one of the things that I was so shocked about when I was learning everything that's going on in Scottish and in UK waters was how shocking a lot of that is, but also how unknown a lot of that is the conversations mm. that I'd have with people and, and you know even myself I had no idea that a lot of this stuff was going on and that a lot of this wildlife was there and the issues and the intricacies and the nuances so we just kind of wanted to get a really engaging way of talking to people about that um and a way that didn't shame anybody or or didn't you know make people feel hopeless and that there's nothing that they could do but hopefully helped people to see that there's loads that we can all do and that we've all got a connection to the sea even if we don't spend time there and that there's you know there is hope there is optimism there are awesome people doing amazing things to help protect our seas and we can be a part of those communities as well so I'm really glad that you took all of that from watching the series because that's that makes all of our hard work worth it when when that's the reaction that people have and we really hope that as well as much as reaching the paddling community the water water community we really wanted to kind of reach outside of our echo chambers and talk to people who might not otherwise want to necessarily spend time learning about marine conservation but maybe through an adventure they might mm -hmm. take something away from that so um, yeah that was the, definitely the motivation behind it 
I want to go into the episodes in a bit more detail a bit later on. But before we do, I just wanted to cover a bit of your sort of backstory, your your background, your water origins, and, and just sort of explore that with you. Um, so I know that you're a surfer, you're a free diver, you're a scuba diver. Um, at what stage did you first discover SARP? Um <clears throat> Not until a long time after I discovered diving and surfing. So 2014 was my first foray on a SUP. Um, and in, I'd seen it a few times before. I see people, you know, pootling about on SUPs before then, but not really thought anything of it and definitely didn't think that it would become such a huge part of my life. Um, but I lived with a group of guys down in Plymouth and they were always out paddleboarding, like, you, you know, you've got to give it a go. And so finally one day they got me on a paddleboard and that was it. Honestly, that was it. It was that first initial experience and then the opportunity and the kind of ideas that came with that of, this is a way that I can go and explore the coast this is how I can explore further afield and have adventures and it all just stemmed from there really so me wanting to help connect other people to the water all came from that initial love of being on the water myself and how that felt and um all the kind of um the way it opened my eyes to the marine environment and to our seas and um, the creatures in it. Excellent. And and I know, or I, I've heard a rumour that um, you, you've got a boat or you, you've picked up a boat and you're looking at exploring um, that element of access to the seas. Is that is that true? That is true. So, um, yeah, I've been thinking, what do I do after paddling around Scotland? Scotland's my favourite country in the world. This was always... This paddling on Scotland was always on my horizon as an incredibly difficult challenge, you know, the ultimate paddleboarding challenge, because some of the paddles are so committing, the weather is so changeable, um, there's so few get-out points, it's just a really gnarly place to paddle, really, um, and an incredible place to paddle, so I'd always really, really wanted to kind of to, to do that. Um but then I was, you know, kind of thinking, well, well, what's next? I was thinking, well, I want to go to St Kilda. There's this, you know, incredible rock stack miles and miles and miles off of the west coast of Scotland. And I was trying to kind of look at maps and charts and think, how could I paddleboard there? And all these different places further afield. And then it became, you know, global. Like, where can I explore next? Like, where are the stories that need to be told? What's happening? Who are the people there that, you know, we need to bring the stories to life? Um, and I just kind of decided... Well, I didn't decide I, I kind of had in my mind that I would really love to learn to sail I'd love to learn to sail I'd love to be able to explore further afield be out on a boat take my boards with me um surfboards paddleboards you know the whole lot free diving kit everything and be able to go and really explore the sea and really bring the magic of the ocean a bit further afield to people back at home through our films um and that was kind of the longer term plan um, but it required me to learn to sail and save up enough money to buy a boat. So it was a, it was quite a long-term plan. And then while we were paddling around Scotland, we met um, a chap who's become a very, very firm friend of ours called Nick, who actually met in episode one of the film, the very end of episode one. And I was telling him about my dream to learn to sail and one day you know, have a boat that I can get out and explore the ocean on and, and, and hopefully as well take other people out on as well. Um, and um, next time I saw him, he said, oh, I've, I've got a, a, a boat on a, a mooring. Would you like it? And wow. I thought this has got to be a joke. Like this, this can't, this, this can't be real. This is everything that like this dream. And it was such a strong dream in my mind. It was such a, this is the next thing. Like this is what I need to be doing. And it's really interesting. Sorry, I will come back to the boat in a second, but all of my expeditions that I've had, like 
after I've done an exhibition, I'll have a period of time where I'm a bit like, mm, you know, kind of mm. just cracking on with the, the admin and the work and my other stuff and everything. And then there'll, there'll come a moment when I'm like, that's what I want to do. And it's been the same for every single exhibition I've done. And it was like that with the boat. It's like, that's that's what's next. I want to, I really, really want to learn to sail and save up and, and, and get a boat and for that to be the next big chapter of my life. And so for Nick to, to basically say, would you like my boat was wow. just, it felt so unbelievably right and nick is unfortunately unable to sail his, his boat anymore he he, he um he used to live on the boat with his wife and his dog and um and it just wasn't it wasn't right for him anymore and i think he felt um quite unsettled that the boat was just sitting at a mooring without anything happening to it and so for him as well it was like a release of that pressure of what to do with his boat knowing that it was coming to james and i we can bring her back to life and mm. take people out on the sea and show people the wonders of the ocean. So yes, I have a boat. Um, not quite sure how to sail it just yet, but I'm getting there. Um, she needs quite a bit of work. So she's on dry dock at the minute, but that's the plan for the year is to get her back on the water um, and um, where she belongs on the West coast of Scotland. Um, Fantastic. And maybe one day we'll go a bit further afield with her, but at the minute, definitely, um, definitely Scotland. Oh, that, that's so exciting, isn't it? And, yeah. uh, you know, just exploring that the coastline, obviously, that has shown off so, so well, you know, in, in your episodes. It's, you know, mm. it's area of the country, which I, I love. So just going back to, to the backstory a bit, I know, I guess you've always had a, a, an affinity for animals based on your career as a, a veterinary surgeon, but I, I know that you became particularly dialed into the marine environment from a visit to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. And yeah. um, how did you you find yourself out there and just tell us about what made such an impression on you um I was out there on my gap year um which I still struggle to say that saying gap year there was that um <laughs> thing a while ago wasn't there um yeah so that's on my gap year before I went to uni um so I had to take a year out to apply for uni and the first half of the year I worked on a dairy farm and um did various bits and bobs of work with animals and then for the second half of my gap year I, I decided to, to travel abroad with a friend of mine and we went to Australia and um, I was surfing quite a bit and um, getting in the water quite a bit and at that point in time so I didn't grow up by the coast I grew up in Warrington which is between Manchester and Liverpool so about as far from the coast as not quite as far from the coast as you can get but I wasn't coastal mm. um, but you know just loved going to the beach anytime I could going down to Wales to surf um and I just found being in Australia the most in incredible lifestyle, connecting with the sea, being in the sea all the time. And I was up on the East Coast and there was an opportunity to learn to scuba dive. Um, and my mum and dad were already scuba divers. They're way adventurous. They're, they're really, <laughs> they're, they're still scuba diving in their, in their 60s. You know, they're out every weekend scuba diving in the UK. They're amazing. Um, but they encouraged me to, to, to get my uh, open water course. And it was like someone had it was like someone had flicked a switch it was like oh my goodness there's an entire world down here that first kind of that first experience of, of breathing under the water and seeing what was down there i was just completely in awe and i'm struggling to find the words to describe it because it was it was like being on a different planet there was so much life and all the colors and just the animals and the creatures and everything down there was just completely mind-blowing for me. Um, 
and I just became obsessed um, and dived as much as I could, snorkeled, scuba'd, free dive. Um, while I was at uni up in Edinburgh, I joined the scuba diving club up there. I was surfing and diving every weekend and just um, really, really got my teeth into what was underwater. And actually, while I was at uni as well, I, I, I had a real interest in marine conservation um, through my veterinary studies and um, spent a lot of time you have to do loads of uh, work experience when you when you're studying to be a vet, and did a lot of that in wildlife conservation and, and marine conservation. So it just became this thing that felt like a real part of who I was. The more and more I learned about it, the more awed I was by it, the more I cared about it, and the more I wanted to look after it. And especially the more I heard about how it's being threatened, the more determined I became to look after it. And then the kind of journey I'm on now is trying to connect more people to the ocean has stemmed from that understanding that actually a lot of people don't have a connection to the sea because it's out out of sight and out of mind so Mm. yeah scuba diving was definitely a big moment for me learning to scuba dive yeah and then we've talked about your your experience of sup and i i think um, your first sizable sup expedition was around the coast of cornwall in 2016 and uh, i don't think i've heard you talk about that just tell us about that first trip and and did it follow the the sort of self-supported approach that you've you've followed ever since um so a trip around cornwall was a total baptism of fire um I was you know 18 months into supping really keen on it loved being out on my paddleboard was living in Devon and Cornwall I was locoming as a vet all around Devon and Cornwall um and just thought this is going to be a great way to talk to people about the marine litter on our beaches because I was doing lots of beach cleans working with surfers against sewage um I thought I can get to all the remote coves, show what's there and and hopefully encourage people to care a little bit about plastic pollution. Um, And um, yeah, like I say, it was a total baptism of fire. Um, I didn't really understand how to work out when the tides were going to be going in certain directions. Um, I knew about wind forecasting, but quickly learned my limits. Um, Mm. I was doing that with a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, um, we paddled together and, and he came along with me and that was just wonderful to have him there. Um, but it was a massive learning curve and, you know, we were paddling out through six foot waves on on beaches because we hadn't thought to paddling in and wow. out of harbours and, um, you know, learning about kit bags and um, camping. And, um, you know, I'd expected it to be flat, calm and sunny and glassy and you know surrounded by dolphins every day and actually it was you know fog and gale force winds and chased by seals at one point like it was really really (laughs) really eye-opening um and quite humbling at times there was there were a couple of times when I really got into trouble and it was quite humbling in terms of understanding the need to really carefully plan and consider and and to be aware of your limitations as a paddleboarder on the ocean because you know as strong as you are and I was really really like really strong-willed and bloody-minded and like I can do whatever I want um but um it was quite humbling in terms of realizing that you can be as strong as you like but the ocean is always stronger than you exactly Um, so yeah definitely a a learning curve yeah and I guess it's something that's quite uh, familiar to new paddle boarders because obviously we've had a, a huge influx of people into the sport and I think my uh, my 
Google alerts feed was full of people being rescued by the RNLI because of an offshore wind. So I think I think there's a big sort of safety thing, and I've I've got a little section on that later on. So you won't, won't sort of go into that. Um, but I know you've done a lot of work with the WSA and so on, and yeah. and all of that safety stuff is sort of uh, woven into your your three episodes as well. Um, so then you, you had an expedition on the west coast of Scotland. It's an area which I love, particularly the Isle of Skye. I've spent a lot of time up on the, in the north of the island, sort of around about Dunvegan and so on. Um, and Neast Point, which is, you know, it must be fantastic. I haven't seen that from a, from a SUP, but it must be quite, quite intimidating. But, oh, um, yes. th- 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 there must have been quite some planning involved in there. And I think you did it on your own unsupported as yeah. well, didn't you? Yeah, so that one was a complete change of plan after day one, actually. So the original plan was for me to paddle around the island and my friend was going to run around the island with her dog and they were going to meet me every night. Her dog was called Skye as well. Um, (laughs) They were going to meet me every night, we'd camp together, we'd eat together. She'd resupply when we needed to, um, Mm -hmm. but, but we'd spend the days apart and then meet up in the evenings. And Sky, the dog, decided after about half an hour that she wasn't up for it um, and just <laughs> lay down and said no more. Yeah. Um, so um, so I carried on on my own. So um, basically just um, my friend um, headed off. She, she went home and I carried on on my own. Um, and um, I really, in some ways... I found it so empowering to do an expedition on my own because there were so many incidences when, you know, if you'd have told me before I got on the water, what would happen that day, I wouldn't have got on the water. I would have said, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fit enough. I don't have enough, you know, mental resilience or, oh, that sounds horrendous. I don't want to do that. And yet I did manage to do it and so it, it was really really empowering it really showed me what I was capable of and amongst the really challenging moments you know S- sky is a windy place really windy and there are some mega currents around this mm. point around Dunvegan in fact um you know you're paddling through the Minch which is an enormous tidal race between Sky and the Outer Hebrides yeah um you it it's not it's a very challenging place to paddle and yet amongst all of that difficulty and that challenge there was so much beauty and so much spaciousness and so much space and so much opportunity to really feel like I was a part of nature. And that's the first time really I felt that was that experience on the Isle of Skye, more so even than, you know, scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. I felt that real strong connection to where I was and to the ocean and to the seals there and the birds and the eagles that were flying overhead. And it was an incredibly special experience and very formative Um and, you know, I had terrible, like, nutrition and food choices with me. I survived one day on on rock cakes. I survived another day on tunics tea cakes. Like, things that now <laughs> would be an absolute no-go. Um, but, you know, then I was young and a bit more able to survive on less calories. And um, Well, it probably didn't touch the sides, did it? No, Calories you're not. expending. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a really a really wonderful experience like you know I wild camped every night with this terrible camping kit and um you know hiked up hills to fill up my water bottles and it was a real real adventure and it yeah like I say it just felt like I was a part of that wild place and that felt really special 
Um, and I was, again, documenting the plastic I was finding as well. Um, but from a more kind of personal level, I found, I think to this day, that experience was my most formative. Um, it was just, mm. it was so, so special. Um, and, and, and didn't you meet James involved in that project? Because oh, there's the film that came out of it, but and, and you needed some help, I think, yeah. shooting it and going back and uh, That's found right, a yeah. budding young filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, so it, we, we have a mutual friend who basically set us up. Um, so she contacted him and said, oh, my, oh, no, they were away hiking somewhere. And she said, oh, my friend's doing this. And he said, that sounds cool. Does she need someone to take photos and anyway basically at the end of the trip um I, I almost actually went home I'd finished the trip and I was really exhausted and I was just ready to go home to my bed um and James I'd finished a couple of days earlier than I planned so James wasn't planning to come up for a couple of days um and I nearly sacked it off and said I don't need, I don't need photos I just want to go home but I thought no 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 I'll just I'll just wait and, and um well you know he he was really interested in helping out with the project with, with teaching people about marine litter and what have you um and anyway he, he he came up and we met up and my parents were there at that point in time they'd come to meet me at the very end of the trip um so he met my parents the same day he met me and he still wasn't put off and um <laughs> yeah we we made this um we made this this film together about paddling around sky um and, and you know we're, we're just friends for for a while for for a good few months um and um that was six years ago this year and we've been together as a couple really since a few months after after that um wow. and we've had our fair share of um testing moments working together on this kind of thing because um, oh, I'm sure I didn't realize how hard it was for him to see me go through stuff like mm. paddling around places um but yes so I met James and James then made the Isle of Sky film Vitamin C which is about paddling from London to John O'Groats and mm -hmm. also the the series um, Scotland Ocean Nation. Yeah, fantastic job he's done on on all Absolutely. of those. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things that stood out about the Sky film um, is that you would assume that in these very isolated places, these very isolated beaches, they would be pure and unspoiled and so yeah. on. But but what you showed is that their isolation actually is a huge problem because seaborne plastic waste is everywhere these days, and uh, and if it's if it's not likely to be seen by humans, it's not likely to to be cleared. And it yeah. was quite a shocking amount of waste that you, you came across. Yeah, and I was shocked. And, you know, I, I was a marine litter campaigner and I was shocked at what I found. Um, you, you've hit the nail on the head. You expect this wild place with these wild beaches, which you cannot get to by land. They're only accessible by sea to be untouched. And they were the worst affected because there's no one there to pick it up. And, you know, one day I found a, a cow who'd swallowed a part of a fishing net and, there were stories from, I met a farmer who said that she'd had to have several of her cows operated on. They grazed down to the waterline. She had to have several operated on to remove plastic from their rumen because it was such an issue from swallowing plastic. Um, so it was very eye-opening. You know, this is, this is the, one of the remotest, some of the remotest places you can get in the UK that I was paddling to and um, no less affected by plastic. And a real mixture of what I was finding, plastic bottles, fishing gear, um, massive pipes from fish farms. And that's the same up the whole of the West Coast of Scotland. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, you could go to almost any beach and, and find that kind of stuff. Yeah, but pretty, pretty hor horrendous. And 
and just to cover off some of your um, your other greatest hits and probably the well the, the the biggest one I guess in terms of distance, which is uh, becoming the first person to cover the distance between Lands End to John O'Groats in 2018 by paddleboard. I mean that was an epic trip. And as you said, that's um, shown in the film Vitamin C. And by the way, we'll link to all of these films in, in the show notes. They're available uh, via YouTube. And I definitely recommend you you catch both Skies to the Limits and Vitamin C and obviously your your new um, STV. And we'll give you all the details in the show notes. But um, at the time you did that Land's End to John Grapes, there were two women attempting the route. There's yourself and, and Fiona Quinn. Um, and that was a very serious manifestation of girl power going on right there. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about sort of the, the strong female representation and participation mm-hmm. um, within SUP, because I can't think of many sports where there have been so many really strong female role models across all flavours of the sport, really leading it and pushing the, the boundaries. I'm really glad you asked that question, actually. So, um my first expedition paddling around Cornwall, I um, I knew that it could be done because two blokes had done it a few weeks before and not one part of me at that point thought it's been done by guys but could it be done by a woman? It just, I, you know, I said I, I was really, you know, bloody minded about things, very stubborn, um, but I didn't, at any point in time think I need to consider the fact that I'm a woman here um and I remember so clearly sitting on the beach at Wembury about to set off to paddle around Cornwall and Marie Buchanan coming down to see me off and being so unbelievably inspired by her she was such a huge help support and inspiration to me getting off that beach and and getting going because like I said I'd only been paddling for 18 months there's so much I didn't know there's so much about nutrition about technique about distances about speed about there's so much I didn't know that I was about to learn um and to have Marie there to teach me reassure me and support me was such a huge help and um you know she's she's still a friend today and I, I, I still feel very inspired by her every time I see her put up a, mm-hmm. a picture of her paddling on the south coast in either beautiful or terribly gnarly conditions um but you're right like this is this is a um a community that has some incredible female people um women paddlers um and you know not women paddlers they're just I think it's just a wonderful community a wonderful supportive community um and um yeah I, I I feel really grateful for for um how supportive it is and you know I've met a lot of people through this community people like you know Joe Mosley who's now mm. also a good friend and um and um yeah there are some real badasses um doing really cool things in this in this community they certainly are i mean a couple of weekends ago i was at sub 12 emily evans just absolutely bossed it relentlessly round the course and she's you know a tiny thing but she just absolutely nailed it on on what is just a you know a, a, a quite you know it got quite difficult in some you know, uh, at some moments on on the course there down in Torquay. So yeah, and Marie yeah, Buchanan. Yeah. Um, if you c- 
can possibly help um, to persuade her to come on to the show. I'm not sure whether appearing on a podcast is her favourite thing, but I've, I've got all my other targets like Bart Desvart and Chris Burtish and obviously okay. yourself. And uh, I just need I to get Marie Buchanan do. on. So if you can put in a word for me, that would be <laughs> that'd be greatly appreciated. She, she's, she's an absolute I mean, legend. She is a legend. And I don't think she is quite aware of how inspiring she is to people um, mm. just by being herself, just by doing her thing and by yeah, bossing it. Um, mm. I, will, I will see what I can do. Fantastic. Thank <laughs> you. That, that's wonderful. That's much appreciated. Okay. So, so in any other episode, we'd be spending a significant amount of time talking about um, Land's End to John O'Groats. You know, it's one of life's sort of great defining journeys. But I did want to spend a bit of time talking about your series, which we've obviously already uh, trailed up front. So it's Scotland, Ocean Nation, and it's definitely a must watch for any paddleboarder of whatever experience level for all sorts of reasons. And it's about your 800 mile journey. You start in Glasgow, up the Clyde, then into the open ocean, up the wild west coast, and then around Cape Wrath, um, and then back down the east coast, ending in Bournemouth. Um, try not to say Bournemouth, because that's where I am. <laughs> Bournemouth, Bournemouth is completely <laughs> different. It's uh, Scotland's first harbour down there. So yeah. um, so how would you sort of encapsulate the series? How would you describe it if you were, say, doing a, a bit of an elevator pitch? So the series is, it, it's about that adventure, but it's about it's it's official tagline it's a it's a journey of discovery an epic journey of discovery and the whole point of it was to show people what's out and out of sight and out of mind through this journey of this adventure through the people that we meet through the wildlife um and it it's it, it, it's there to celebrate our seas. It's there to really celebrate what we have in our ocean, you know, right here in the UK, why it's worth protecting, um, what's going on under the water um, and how we connect to the scene and why that's important. So I paddled around that coast. I, I, I started in Glasgow because that's where COP26 was happening later in the year. I'd already paddled around the Dumfries and Galloway coast as far as that when I did Land's End to John O'Groat. So um, I was thinking, how can I make this relevant to this year? So paddling down the Clyde, I wanted to show people that actually even Scotland's biggest city is connected to the ocean by this massive river, the Clyde. Um, and along the way, I, I met Scotland's ocean people, fishermen, um, conservationists, artists, groups of kids, um, water users, surf therapy groups. And the whole point was to see how people find a connection to the sea, what the sea means to them. Um, and then along the way, we just let happen what happened and some unbelievable things happened, both mm. good things and bad things. Um, we experienced the most epic parts of Scotland's coastline. Again, good epic and bad epic. Yeah. Um, we experienced Scotland's most incredible wildlife. Good epic and, again, <laughs> terrible mm experiences with, with with scotland's wildlife um and um and by taking it on as an adventure i hope that it would capture people's imaginations and bring more people into the story and bring more people into the conversations that we wanted to have which was about what is actually happening on our seas on our doorstep what's happening in terms of biodiversity climate change in terms of all the wildlife there in terms of the people there um and what is actually underwater what's out of sight and out of mind and what can we do to further connect to our seas why should we connect to our seas and um, what can we do to look after them 
So um, the, uh, that elevator was a very long elevator. Um, it, it was, was like wasn't it? It's probably Empire State. Elevator. Yeah, <laughs> maybe got two that. miles on that. No, 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 that, that was brilliant. You, you certainly <laughs> encapsulated that. And, and we'll go into some of those topics in a bit more detail because there's some really fantastic stories to tell there. But um, I'm sort of contractually obliged as the presenter of SUP FM to go into a bit of SUP nerdery mm. um, before we enter the Crap really on. substantial discussion. So, so first of all, um, I observe that the board you're on, it looks remarkably similar to some of the boards that you've previously used on on, on other trips. Is it the okay. same board that you've been exactly using? Exactly the same. It's and the same board how... that I used to paddle around the Isle of Skye, Land's Enter John O'Groats, and then all the way around Scotland. Yeah. Okay, so my follow-up question for you then, Cal, is how on earth is it still intact, bearing in mind <laughs> the number of harbours and, and rocky beach landings you've had to do? I mean, it still looks absolutely immaculate. Yeah, um, just a very, very well-made board. So it's the, am I allowed to talk about the board a little bit? Well, we're sponsored by Starboard, so yes, absolutely. So um, so it's a Starboard touring board, Pine Tech, 12 foot 6 by 28 and a half, 29 and a half inches, sorry. Um, and honestly, that board feels like an extension of me now. Whenever I get on it, it just feels like it's a, it's a part of me. I did smash it up on some rocks accidentally when I was doing the jog and had to gaffer tape it together for a, a few hundred miles. Um, mm-hmm. It's had a couple of dodgy repairs of solar airs. Apart from that, it is in phenomenal condition. My dad and I actually revarnished the the top of the board last summer, um, but it's still going strong. It's mm. an absolutely brilliant board. And the fact that it is still standing after thousands and thousands and thousands of miles and, what, seven it's 2016 to yeah seven years what's 2016 to two, two that yeah it's seven years of, yeah, yeah, of yeah. being really really heavily used yeah. um actually no I only started using it in 2017 six years of being really heavily used is testament mm. to how well those boards are made um and I've actually just um started paddling the same type of board, so the starboard touring board, but a 14 foot by 28 inches. Um, mm. So watch the space on that one because um, that's the the kind of, uh, I'm using that board at the minute and, and seeing how that feels, hopefully a little bit speedier and, and yeah. more streamlined. Um, and that's going to have, have a bit nothing, more glide. Yeah, but I have honestly nothing but praise to sing for that, um, for, for their touring boards, really feels like you could just go forever with them really amazing yeah yeah no then they are quality aren't they yeah and 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 just on the the sort of nerdery um so obviously um you journeyed around cape wrath and they don't call it cape wrath because it's sunshine and lollipops i mean it's all <laughs> sort of properly gnarly but one of the first points that you made at the start of the first episode and actually woven within all the other episodes is the sheer amount of time that you spent learning about experiencing the tides and conditions and behavior of water so all yeah. of your experience that you've um, you've accumulated and also it shows you several times calling the coast guard letting them know where you are you know i mean basically Basically, that uh, and you talk you talk about exit points or the lack of exit points, escape points. So you know, safety is is woven kind of seamlessly throughout the episode, and it's pretty much a case study. You know, if you pick out the right bits of, of how to organise an expedition. I mean, w- was the inclusion of, of those points a deliberate approach? Because I think some adventure shows do tend to sort of hide or leave out some of the the preparation and the thinking. 
yeah, it was definitely, definitely deliberate. And there's a little piece to camera. It's only about three minutes long, but in the first episode where we were editing the first episode and we were seeing, you know, massive drone shots of me five miles offshore on the way to an island or, um, you know, in enormous choppy seas. And I actually sat down with with James. I said, we need to do a piece to camera where I talk about safety because I do not want anybody thinking this looks like a piece of cake. I'm going to get on my paddleboard in the centre of Glasgow and paddle over to Aaron without knowing mm-hmm. what, what they were doing. Um, and, you know, like I've said already on, you know, the, in the last half an hour, I started from being really, really clueless about, you know, about what paddleboarding was and and have built up this knowledge to get to this point over years and years and years. Um and I really just wanted to hammer home that that was the case, that um, this is possible to do and it's great fun and it's brilliant and it's empowering. It's wonderful, but only if it's done safely um, and you can't mitigate for everything, but there's so much that you can mitigate for. Mm. Um, so, yes, we definitely wanted to to wind safety into the narrative from the get go. Um, and you know, whenever we went on the water, we were checking forecasts, we were we were planning, we were, um, this is why I couldn't speak to you, unfortunately, while we were paddling, because every spare second was, mm. um, was forecasts, was um, calling the Coast Guard, was um, making sure that we were going to be safe. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of logistics that goes on behind the scenes. And, you know, we could have done three one-hour episodes just on the logistics of how to, how to take on a trip like this, but... Um, yeah. Um, that got a bit, bit boring after a while. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And, and as I've said, probably lots of times, it's a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And if you are listening and planning um, an adventure of any length or just want to enjoy the film from your armchair, there's a real feeling that, that we're actually there doing it alongside you, which comes across really clearly. But obviously, that, there are other messages in there as well. Um, Life is another co star in there. All of your very significant encounters with wildlife and as you said some positive and some rather upsetting ones yeah. and and one of the things that I wanted to start asking you about was your encounter with an orca group where they got a little close for comfort and it and it seems that at the same time um, it was both the best and probably the most frightening part of the trip just, just tell us a bit about that experience yeah too right you've hit, yeah definitely hit the nail on the head there um so I was paddling it was one morning quite early morning I think we got on the water at five or six or something um quite choppy water it was a bit foggy it wasn't a nice day for paddling and I was absolutely exhausted you know the day before I'd broken down on my paddleboard and cried because I was so tired um and we had just one day left of of, of possible paddling um before a big storm came in and we were going to be off the water for a few days so James and I, we were umming and ahhing for ages. Should I just rest? Do I just need to take some time off? I was really knackered, like 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 I say, just weeping, tired. Um, and um, because we knew we were going to be off the water for a while, and we kind of looked at the logistics. We were coming close, quite close to Cape Wrath, so we looked at the logistics of if we stop here, we're then going to be another ten miles away from Cape Wrath. Whereas if we paddle an extra ten miles this morning, then when we get a weather window, we might just be able to nip around Cape Wrath. Um, so anyway, we decided just to get on the water and just battle through it. We knew it wasn't going to be a very nice paddle. Um, and I'm so glad we did. Um, at the time, I maybe wasn't. Um, but, you know, a few miles from finishing, I, I was really wrecked. I was on my knees, just, oh, God, just got to do three more miles, three more miles. And then um, I heard this big kind of 
behind me and I thought uh, instant thought was as dolphins and my instant thought was the dolphins have come to give me a boost like you know I'll I can manage the last three miles now and I looked around and I was like oh god I didn't say oh god I said something much worse but there was a fin which was six foot tall so taller than me standing on the board massive black fin and then another massive black fin and then a slightly smaller black fin and they were really close at this point they were they were you know less than the paddleboard's distance away from me oh. and then the, the basically two bulls and one one female and the males were three times length of my board we're talking um 30 feet six um uh, 10 10 meters the, the males can grow up to they were absolutely huge I couldn't fathom how big they were and they just kind of swam around me and the females swam up to me so um orcas live in matriarchal society so the females are the the, the big bosses yeah. she swam up to me swam underneath my paddleboard turned on the side and looked up at me and I was just looking down at this orca like just locking eyes this orca um wow. and um my reaction was so uncool so someone had said to me before I set off that you know you you know you might see orca on the west coast I was like yeah yeah whatever but also if I did see an orca I wouldn't be bothered because there are no incidences of orca attacking humans in the wild so they're not a threat to humans and then when there's an enormous orca underneath your paddleboard and they're so big and you're this tiny human on this tiny paddleboard um it's a very different experience so um yeah I uh, completely and utterly lost it um and um it definitely made the last three miles of paddling back to shore very interesting and at the time it was just this crazy like really visceral reaction of just I couldn't control myself I was shaking I was crying I was screaming I'm pretty sure I scared them off just screaming so loudly (laughs) and then um afterwards it was like oh my goodness did that actually just happen that is one of the biggest privileges of my life to have Mm been that close to an orca and for them to have come and investigated me and to obviously deemed me unthreatening or you know just just another part of their environment felt Mm. like such a such a privilege and such a kind of a nod from them so um and I got back to land and just about managed to stop crying and then James kind of turned to me and he goes hey Carl um an orca knows you exist and I was like oh (laughs) 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 um so yeah definitely for me, the the most, just the most incredible part of the whole expedition was was that. Mm. Um, and your presence of mind, despite the fact that you had all of that fight or flight and huge dump of adrenaline mm. there, to actually sort of record the experience pretty much immediately afterwards. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, how on earth did you did you even think about that? Because so James was about one hundred meters away, and, and he was in a kayak. He was paddling with me at that point in time, and he he said he turned around and I'd screamed at him James Orca and he thought I'd said James Porpoise and he'd be like oh god she gets so excited about anything (laughs) and he'd turned around and seen this massive fin that was bigger than me and so he'd paddle back as fast as he could to me because he wanted to get them on film because that's his like he is so laser focused he put his drone up in the air you know he didn't manage to capture um them on the drone but um I um I knew after it happened, I was like, oh, God, James is never going to forgive me for not having got this. So as they were leaving, as the orca were leaving, I got my phone out of my pocket and Mm. and was like, at least I can get it on my iPhone. Hands were shaking, pressed record, put the phone up and like videoed them swimming away and thought, okay, at least I've got them swimming away. Um, And then 
later realized that I'd pressed photo and not video and got a photo of my feet. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I thought the least I can do is get, is get my reaction. Um, uh, and honestly, the whole trip, we were so laser focused on, on capturing everything. It was mm. such a huge part of what we were doing that everywhere, every day was a lot of filming, both on the water, off the water, cutaways, um, interviews, like everything was film, film, film. So, um, it, it was always at the kind of forefront of my mind, really. Yeah. So, so obviously that that's the the headline, the biggest apex predator out there. But there were some much smaller, equally remarkable creatures. I mean, flame shells, you know, were absolutely <laughs> beautiful little creatures. Oh, but good. but they they craft their own environment um, a bit at a time, don't they? Just tell us a yeah. bit about um, those. I'm so glad you brought up flame shells. So this was another species I didn't really know much about. And then when I heard about them, I was like, people need to know about these. They're mm. so cool. So flame shells are these. I like um, uh, a paper I read once that called them an iron brew coloured mollusk, which I just absolutely <laughs> love because um, they're just, they're, they're, um, they're, oh, they're just wonderful. So they're basically like a, um, a bivalve, um, so like a, like a, almost like a clam, but they have these incredible orange tentacles, um, iron brew coloured tentacles, and <laughs> they live on the, on the seabed. Um, in lots of places around Scotland, particularly in the Clyde, or they used to until um, the habitat was so severely degraded, but they create these amazing reefs with their tentacles. They all lock together and create these biogenic reefs, which are basically living reefs. So we have living reefs on the seabed in Scotland. How cool is that? That's just amazing. And um, I really just think if more people were to see what's actually there, they might care a bit more about protecting it um because oftentimes we just look out at the sea and see this like black dark cold mm. looking vast body of water and you can't imagine that there are these cool little flame shells um underwater so i'm really glad you picked up on them because they are such a cool species yeah iron brew colored is seems particularly <laughs> suitable doesn't it and you so, wouldn't yeah. expect something that color to be in the scottish waters you know yeah. I mean, it, it really is is quite beautiful so so just coming back to the other sort of wildlife encounters um you know the orca was a particular highlight but there were some pretty upsetting experiences that you had particularly coming from entanglement and there were mm. some pretty bullet examples that you came across during your journey um you, one of which you were able to to help with, but um, in terms of the gannet who who you rescued from an entanglement, there was a, a really nasty follow up to it. But um, just explain a bit about. I mean, obviously the the key one is is the whale that you came across, but but just tell us about your experience with with the gannet that you were able mm. to help. So we were paddling around Troop Head, which is Scotland's biggest gannet colony on the mainland. Um, so just an amazing place again, ama amazing place. That I'm so glad we could show people because you're paddling along and there are just hundreds, thousands, in fact, of gannets just flying overhead, like in just like spirits or something. It's an inc incredible place to be. I always thought it, it felt a bit like that scene in Harry Potter when all the dementors are swirling overhead, except with like good dementors because they're gannets and they're beautiful and incredible and, um, and massive, so there were all these gannets swirling overhead, and I was like, this is the best day ever. And I was paddling with um, my friend um, Cheesy from, from Palm Equipment. He was there with me on the day, and we were having the best day. And then we saw this thing on a rock, and um, I paddled closer, and it's, it was flapping, and 
um like instantly up my like my heart started just beating and um it was a it was a gannet that was basically stuck on this rock um and paddled over jumped onto the rock and um it become entangled in uh, like a, a monofilament fishing line which had big barbed hooks on it that had unfortunately got themselves stuck in its tail and in its legs and then one of the hooks had hooked itself onto a bit of rock so the, the poor thing was completely stuck I mean in some ways good that it had been stuck there on the rock because it meant that it couldn't fly off and drown or whatever um so there's a massive lead weight on it as well um but basically climbed onto the rock and um took my time to disentangle this this beautiful big bird um and it had some not insignificant injuries but injuries that i figured it would survive from so it had some um damage to its to its tail and to its into its feet but stuff that it should be able to recover from on its own so release the bird um let it um uh, uh just just left it to it um and it was a mixture of feeling really grateful to have come across it so that i could do something about it um it felt you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vet. I've, I've worked with animals for decades to be able to actually do something physically positive to help an animal was really, um, it, it, it felt good, but it also felt devastating that, that I had to, that, that was, an, that, that was a thing. Um, and, um, I, I kind of saw lots of gannets in that colony, which were affected by entanglement and by marine litter and, it was really quite heartbreaking because they are the most beautiful bird. Um, and it was really kind of heartbreaking to see how, how we humans had affected them. And it's not always through carelessness or negligence. Um, but at the end of the day, it is our, it is, it is humans, humans doing. Um, so yeah, so that was quite a harrowing, harrowing moment. Um, and then do you want me to talk about the whale as well? Yeah, yeah, if you could. So the whale um, was actually a few weeks earlier than the gannet. Um, the gannet was kind of the the final straw for me. I was so upset after having found the whale that finding the gannet as well and all the other gannets that were that were affected by by um, fishing uh, equipment was was really just kind of yeah. I was just so devastated by it, um, but I found a. Um, we f- we were paddling along on the northeast coast and we saw something floating on the horizon paddled over to it and you know within 300 meters of it i kind of got the feeling i knew what it was it absolutely stank and there was this oily film on the water and we got closer to it and it was a a, a whale a, a, a dead whale that we figured out from its length was a juvenile so a year old a humpback whale um that was severely entangled with ropes and and creel pots around its tail, um, possibly dead for a week. And um, it was just at the time, again, we were so laser focused on, we need to tell the story. So we filmed everything. We filmed pieces to camera. I was, you know, we managed to stay very, very focused and, and did our job and filmed everything. And it felt like this real adrenaline moment. And James kept saying, there's a reason it's us that's found it. There's a reason it's us that's found it. We've got filming equipment. We can tell the story. There's a reason it's us. And he was just so focused on making sure that that we did a good job of of capturing everything. And I was so focused on making sure that I did all the pieces to camera that I needed to do to explain what was going on. Um, and then, you know, we got back to land, reported it to all the relevant agencies, um, did everything that we that we needed to do, having found that dead animal. 
And then I just absolutely crashed. I was just devastated. I had, you know, a couple of days of just, I was really tearful and just felt really upset that the first humpback whale I'd ever seen was a dead baby. Um, and actually, after I kind of, after the first couple of days of just feeling really, really gutted, um, I, it took me on quite a deep dive into marine mammal entanglement. Um, and in the second episode of Scotland Ocean Nation, you know, we, we meet various different types of fishermen and we talk about the different types of fishing. And this was another kind of um, consequence of fishing that I'd heard about, but never mm-hmm. in my in my wildest nightmares could ever have imagined that I would come across it myself. Um, and so it really brought it home to me how significant marine mammal entanglement is in the UK and, you know, globally. And a lot of this stuff goes unseen. That's the issue. So mm. in some ways, I'm really glad that we did find it so that we could we could bring it to the, the public's attention. But yeah, like I say, it brought me in a really deep dive of, of looking into what we can do about marine mammal entanglement. We went and spoke to lots of experts, lots of experts, not just the ones that you see in the film. We actually interviewed four or five different groups and different people about marine mammal entanglement and tried to get all the most relevant information about it um and it's made me feel a lot more passionate about solving this issue because this is solvable and it's it's not something that should be happening in our waters now in the Mm. 21st century you know these are such important creatures and yet these animals are getting wrapped up in in static gear in crew parts in ropes um and so i'm still in touch with quite a few of the groups who are working towards reducing that incident by various technologies and, and what have you um so yeah a lot to learn definitely yeah, and and you know, as you say, out out of sight, out of mind. And there are so many of those themes that you cover um, during the, those three episodes. And yeah. you know, I, and I think you know where where you've sort of delivered it so well is that you know the pace of the episodes are really well weighted. So that, that you know you can see in the edit, there's absolutely no gaps there. You sort of you mm. spend as much time as required on the various different subjects. And I think you know by showing rather than telling i think that's a, a hugely effective way of getting a environmental message over because um you know i think the tell and do approach generally doesn't doesn't go across very well and it doesn't necessarily engage i just wondered about the the, the sort of environmental messages that that you give was, was again was that a conscious decision to to follow that sort of show rather than tell approach yeah, definitely. Um, we wanted people to feel like they were coming on a journey with us, that they were part of it. Um, and I think there's no better way of doing that than letting, it's really hard to do, but letting yourself be like completely vulnerable to whatever's going to happen and mm. allowing people to come along with you. That's kind of, that's a whole point of the, the paddling mission was was to kind of get people on board pardon the pun um and um hopefully they could feel like they were a part of it as well um so um and i and i totally agree with you i think people really need to kind of find a find their own unique way of connecting to the messages so you know i, I could stand up and talk to people for an hour about mammal entanglement but if they see it with their own eyes they're going to feel very very differently about it mm. um and um and hopefully the films go some way to doing that. They go some way to kind of sh- opening people's eyes to what's going on, to helping them experience the absolute majesty of our ocean underwater, above water. Um, but I do think that there's, 
I, I do think that there's no substitute for actually getting people there in person, um, mm. which is, of course, um, what we do with our charity Seafall, which is all about um, helping more people to feel connected by, to the ocean, predominantly mm. by actually taking them there and actually getting them underwater, snorkeling or getting them paddleboarding, getting them seeing for themselves what's, what's going on there. Um, and the very last part of the last episode of Scotland Ocean Nation, we take a group of kids with our charity from Glasgow to the Isle of Arran to go snorkeling mm. and just seeing their faces light up when they see what's underwater is so mind blowing. That, that bit's, that bit's quite amazing. So the inner city kids, um, I know that one in five children in the UK have, have never been to the sea. So obviously yeah. there's a whole mission there, but, uh, that day looked a little bit, uh, a little bit cold. Uh, the wind probably whipping off the sea. I mean, it wasn't the tropical waters that you were swimming in there and, and they all loved it, didn't they? In fact, it one of them said it was the best day of their life, which is always <laughs> yeah. a, a, a double thumbs up, isn't it? Was that what you were expecting? Not at all. I was so nervous that day. I was so nervous because it was freezing cold, and um, yeah, it wasn't the best. It wasn't the best weather. And these kids had never been snorkeling in Scotland before, and we were going to throw them in the sea. And I'd been in to check the site a, a, a bit before, and granted, I have had the great privilege of snorkeling and scuba diving some of the most amazing spots in the whole world. But this little bay, in, excuse me, this little part of Lamlash Bay. There wasn't that much to see. I didn't think there was that much of them to see. So I was really worried that they weren't gonna they weren't gonna find it that exciting. And honestly, we couldn't so we we planned to put them in the sea. We had two different groups. We planned to get them in for 20 minutes at a time. And we after about an hour and a bit, we couldn't get them out. We were having to drag them out. We were gonna miss the bus back to the ferry. They were so enthralled by what they were finding. Like tiny little hermit crabs, bits of seaweed, mm. like tiny fish everything to them because it was new and because they had no idea it was there it was so special and so it went from this day where I was like I'm gonna have to plan loads of stuff and loads of chat and you know keep them entertained to literally all they needed was Mm. to be in the sea and I didn't have to do any anything other than just support that and it was really ironing to me to just kind of first of all to acknowledge my own privilege that I get to do that whenever I want and that for me that is totally normal um, and second of all, just how powerful it is for mm. people to actually see what's underwater, to actually be in the yeah. sea and to experience it for, for themselves. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. hugely powerful. And there was one of the little stars there who actually got the message herself at yeah. the end. You know, she she was really clear about the fact that there are all these vulnerable creatures and you don't get to see them and that we yeah. as humans have a obligation to protect them. I mean, that was yeah. uh, she was completely on message there. Yeah, definitely. That that honestly, that moment when she said that was um it just felt like we've 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 done our job and um and it it, it just felt like that's exactly that's just exactly what we want to do and actually it's not not that complicated. It's just that we have the great privilege of of being there and spending time there and mm. these kids maybe haven't before. Um, but all you need to do is show them and the compassion for that place comes out. So, um, yeah, it was really special. I mean, you know, there's so much to cover and obviously we are, we are not going to, you know, even remotely do it justice in this, um, in this chat, but, um, we've run for an hour. Have, Have you got a bit more time? 
Yeah, for okay. sure. Yeah. Is that my, right? My, Fantastic. My okay. tea's still well, lukewarm. <laughs> excellent. Good stuff. Okay. As long as it's still liquid, that's that's fine. So, um, so uh, the other key theme there is, is about the marine environment and the marine ecosystem and you know i would classify myself as someone who spent a you know decent amount of time on the water and has i would say a moderate amount of knowledge but there was a huge amount of learning in there and one of the other messages that you you really reinforced in there is the practical benefits of a well-functioning marine ecosystem and just from practical terms from a sort of existence point of view we know that the marine environment ties up carbon but i was surprised about how much much oxygen it produces for us to breathe so every second breath we take is oxygen produced by the ocean and obviously one of the main points you make is it simply won't do that if the environment continues to be compromised in the way that it's being damaged at the moment yeah quite right and I think um, I think that's one of the things that is often forgotten about especially so especially in the year that I was paddling which was the year that Glasgow was hosting COP26 and there was all this chat about terrestrial forests and climate change and x y and z and climate and and there was so little focus on the ocean which covers 70 percent of our planet um and biodiversity and nature and their roles in the climate crisis um and actually the ocean has a massive part to play in our lives even if we don't paddleboard even if we don't go snorkeling produces our oxygen it's already absorbed a quarter of our anthropogenic carbon emissions so that's carbon that's been created by man um has a massive capacity to capture and store carbon, not just in its plants, like its seagrass and its kelp, but also in its massive marine mammals like whales, which you can only imagine how much carbon a whale stores over its lifetime, mm. and then sinks to the bottom of the sea where the carbon's stored. You've got massive like um, areas of muds which store loads of carbon. Um, and then, you know, it, it creates, it has all these other roles that it plays in, in our human lives. And I find it sad to think that we have to think about the ocean in terms of what we can get from it. But I think so often that's the way that humanity seems to be working at the mm. minute. And it's irreplaceable. The, the services that the ocean provides are irreplaceable and vitally important to every single person's life on this planet. Um, and that's a message I really wanted to get across that, you know, this show and this ocean isn't just for those of us who really like to, you know, mess about there and, you know, hi- you know hippies like me who like to go and snorkel or whatever. It's for everybody. And we all therefore have a responsibility and a right to stand up for its protection, not just those who want to use it for extractive means or for enjoyment. It's it's there for every single person. Um and, and I think it's starting to come across in some of the narrative um, from like the UN conferences and stuff. Um, but, you know, we haven't got um, unlimited space to on land to plant forests, but there's so much ocean where if we protected it, we'd have incredible biodiverse ecosystems that could store our carbon and support yeah. livelihoods and, yeah. Yeah, and and you're right. It's it's the land versus the sea. So one of the the, the things again that I was unaware of is um, some legislation or which was relaxed back in the 1980s, which allowed um, trawlers and dredgers to be able to operate within three miles of the coastline, and that's the spawning ground. Um, of fish and when you see the amount of damage that it actually does I mean it's a bit like on land if you were say bulldozing a forest to try and harvest truffles it's it, it's that destructive totally. 
but because yeah. it's it's hidden you don't see it and there's no one who actually owns the seabed it all happens invisibly but but yeah. the amount of damage that it provides it ends up sort of denuding um fish stocks so I, you know I, I i'm just interested you might not know the answer to this but for me that seems to be one of the big changes in recent years, which has had such a catastrophic effect on the marine ecosystem. Do you you know if there's any sort of campaigning or or progress to try and and re-establish that limit? I know that there are some protected zones. Absolutely. So this is basically um, until the 1980s, around the whole of the coast of Scotland, we're not talking UK now, talking Scotland specifically, there was the three miles within land of all of Scotland was um, out, off limits to dredges, uh, sorry, to trawlers. Now, trawlers, uh, tr- fishing with a trawl is basically dragging a heavy net across the seabed, and it's normally for prawns in Scotland, langoustine. Um, in the 1980s, the fishing on the outside of those three miles had been um, basically outfished, so they petitioned the government to let them inside three miles. They were allowed inside three miles, and since then, that has led to the collapse of many, many fish stocks around the coast of Scotland, because like you quite rightly said, those um, areas within the three miles of coast are often quite shallow and often quite um, fragile. And that's where you get a lot of nurseries. You get where you get the flame shells. That's where you get things like myrrh, which is Scotland's coral reef. Um, you get um, kelp and plants growing. And those fragile seabed areas, since the dredges and trawlers have been allowed within those three miles have been completely destroyed or almost completely destroyed. Sorry, not, not completely destroyed, but almost um, they've been, they've been really degraded. Let's say that they've been really, really um, badly damaged. Um, And um, what that's meant is we've seen a collapse in fish stocks and in livelihoods for many people who relied on the sea. Um, And there's a coalition of, um, over 100 members around 100 organizations around the coast of Scotland who are petitioning for that three mile limit to be brought back in um, and they've been petitioning for a few years um, the campaign is called Our Seas and the website is ourseas.scot and you can go there and you can put your name to the petition you can learn more about it there's a really short film um, uh, that you can learn more about the three mile limit um, but that is if if that was reintroduced, that would instantly um, uh, cover the Scottish government's ambition to protect thirty percent of waters by twenty thirty. It would protect fish stocks. It would have a massive impact on a positive impact on the biodiversity and the health of the ocean, both within those three miles and outside of the three miles, because it would have a spillover effect. Um, I think, from my personal point of view, I definitely um, think that the the seas around Scotland need to be better managed. Um, at the minute, they are so poorly managed. Um, and I think that there needs to be more consideration for the of the impact that lots of different types of fishing has on the marine environment, not just trawling and dredging, but also like we talked about, um, entanglement by creel gear. I don't think that the answer is to, um, is to ban trawling and just allow creeling, which is the static pots, um, without any kind of limit on creel numbers because that that's not going to have um a, a great result for for cetaceans for whales and dolphins um so it's really complicated and 
through the three episodes of our series, we really tried to get across a little bit of that information and to try and help people to understand what the different types of fishing are, what the impacts are, and um, what can be potentially done about it. Because it is really complicated, but um, it's also not complicated if that makes sense like mm. it's 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 complicated in that some, people don't really tend to know about it but also it's there's quite, some easy it's wins there yeah and, yeah and certainly you bring the, the focus on so cal I, i'm um three pages into my notes here and i think i'm probably <laughs> going to have to discard most of the other seven here but just in terms of your plans for this obviously it's on scottish tv stv and as i said we'll we'll link to all of the details in in the show notes um, what are the plans? I mean, how do we get it out in front of more people? Is Scottish TV going to give it a network showing? Is it going to be expanded through to the ITV network? I can see this as being required viewing for, for schools. What, what are the plans to sort of get in front of more eyes? So at the minute, it's only available on the STV player, which is available UK wide. So it's not just in Scotland. Um we just at the minute that's that's the only place it's available but we are working with other broadcasters around the world to try and get it um available in other places as well it would have been so much easier to make this film for youtube it would have been a doddle it would have taken us a quarter of the time to have made this series for youtube but the whole point of making it for telly was that we wanted it to reach outside of the echo chamber that i currently talk within Mm. Um, and so that's why we went down that route and we're really delighted that it's gone onto a Scottish broadcaster as well because it I think it gives um, Scottish people a sense of ownership of of their waters um, so um, who knows at this point in time um, we're hoping that um, people continue to to watch it on STV um, they're doing a push on the network on the uh, linear channel on the, the tele channel um, in May to try and get more people watching it on the player um, but not quite sure at the minute so we'll mm-hmm. just have to kind of watch this space for the moment. So it's available to the end of March next year um, yes. and and as you said you download the STV app anywhere in the UK now I did notice um, you do have to um, put in um, a Scottish postcode in there so I put my grannies oh, in. You have to put in a Scottish postcode? Didn't you? I, I okay. Well, no, if, I registered with my postcode here. There you go. Okay. So, so if you do, then I'm sure you can find a postcode um, somewhere in yeah. Scotland to input in that. And <laughs> if you live outside the UK, um, uh, VPN, just, just saying on that one, but uh, I would certainly really highly recommend it because it's a, a truly a stunning experience and, um, and a must see for any paddle boarders or, or water lovers, wherever you are. Uh, and as I said, you know, we talked about some of the, quite serious issues that are raised there but ultimately it is a a celebration of the ocean you know we haven't even talked about some of the people who you met there um, including Nick who who looked like quite a character there I think like everyone we get a a huge physical and and mental boost from being on the ocean being next to water and I think that's something regardless of your flavour of water activity is something that that we all all share so uh, hopefully the sub community can get behind this the the more eyeballs the better i think in terms of of sharing it more widely and you don't have to be a paddleboarder to to really get something from this so uh, cal it's been a real privilege to be able to speak to you and also to share in your adventure thanks so much for joining us on sup fm and uh, see you on the water thank you so much i I really appreciate you um, supporting this and 
Um, it's great to speak to you again and um, definitely next time can we do it on paddleboards please can we go for a paddle and have a chat then definitely sounds good <laughs>